We have many distinguished speakers at, uh, distinguished scholars at the Cato Institute. We have scholars in constitutional studies, economics, foreign policy, education, and so on, but perhaps our most distinguished scholar, at least if we can agree on what the meaning of distinguished is, um, is our H.L. Mencken Research Fellow, P.J. O'Rourke. I have sort of grown up with PJ. When I was in college, the most popular magazine on campus was National Lampoon, which he edited. And I remember quite a few funny bits from it, but I can't quote them because I think they all involve drug use, ethnic stereotypes, or gender relations. And they're all forbidden now. He then moved on to Rolling Stone, where he was the foreign affairs desk chief, which was totally cool because they paid him to travel wherever he wanted to, although why he wanted to travel to Beirut and a televangelist's retirement village was always kind of mystifying. And then as he moved out of the rock and roll stage and into the age of sober reflection, he became a correspondent for the soberest magazine in America, the Atlantic Monthly, and he wrote soberly about Medicare reform, Social Security reform, campaign finance reform, and other adult topics. And now, as he moves into the age of worrying about retirement savings and college tuitions, he is editing a magazine on finance and investment. And you may judge the seriousness of this project by the fact that he recently asked me to write for this magazine. Um, the magazine is online, it's free, and it's called American Consequences. By my count, PJ is the author of 19 books, including Holidays in Hell, Republican Party Reptile, Parliament of Whores, All the Trouble in the World, and Eat the Rich. He is one of the funniest writers around. Indeed, he has more citations in the Penguin Dictionary of Humorous Quotations than any other living writer. What people often miss when they talk about his humor is what a good reporter and what an insightful analyst he is. Parliament of Whores is a very funny book, but it's also a very perceptive analysis of politics in a modern democracy. And if you read Eat the Rich, you will find out more about how countries get rich and why they don't than in a whole year of econ at most colleges, which is why I recommend those two books as Christmas gifts. Give your friends and family a very inexpensive postgraduate course in political economy. And now he has taken his careful study of politics and economics and his in-depth reading of Adam Smith for another book and his work as editor of a financial magazine and produced his latest book, None of My Business, PJ Explains Money, Banking, Debt, Equity, Assets, Liabilities, and Why He's Not Rich and Neither Are You. Though, of course, some of you are rich, so you probably don't need to be here. You can pick up copies of the book uh, after lunch in the foyer, and PJ will be happy to sign them at that point. It is a pleasure to introduce the H.L. Mencken Research Fellow of the Cato Institute, the author of None of My Business, PJ O'Rourke. Well, thank you all for, for coming to the, the, the Cato lunch. Um, I'm going to um, talk about the root of libertarianism, money. Now, of course, money is the root of libertarianism. That's why the Cato Institute has you all here today. Uh, 
But even aside from your generous contributions to the Cato Institute, money is the root of libertarianism. Money is value. Value is property. Property has value because it is private, and private property is the root of libertarianism. Public property? Ha! Ah, forget it. Compare. Your bathroom? Public restrooms. Your garden? Public parks, especially after dark. Your car? Public transportation, especially in this city. Libertarianism is about private property. First and foremost, the private property that you call you and I call me, uh, the private property we have in ourselves, you know? I own me, you own you, they own they. Without owning ourselves, we can't be individuals. Without being individuals, we can't be libertarians. No individuals, no individual liberty, no individual dignity, no individual responsibility. And just as important, is the private property that we produce with our individual liberty, create with our individual dignity, and nurture with our individual responsibility. But back to money. Private property is meaningless if property can't be exchanged among individuals. Therefore, a medium of exchange, therefore money. And therefore, money is the root of libertarianism. But money, as those of us who have some, or want some, or need some know, uh, is a confusing matter. Uh, it's a very confusing matter indeed. In fact, the history of money is a history of confusion. And, 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 and much of that confusion is deliberate, and most of that deliberate confusion is caused by political interference with money. Now before money, when the medium of exchange was barter, uh, we were trading goats for pigs. Now, unless we fell for the old pig in a poke trick and got a rescue cat instead of a piglet, what we saw was what we got, right? Then came commodity money. Now, anything that's used as money, if it has value in of itself, is commodity money. The Aztecs used cocoa beans uh, for money. North Africans used salt, hence the, the term salary. Uh, uh, medieval Norwegians used butter and dried cod for money, and their ATM machines were a mess. <laughs> Some commodities work better than others as, as money. Uh, uh, precious metals have, have been money for, for more than 5,000 years. Uh, they're a reliable, long-term store of value, but they're cumbersome. I mean, uh, you don't fall into the swimming pool at the senior living community uh, 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 retirement area with your pockets full of, uh, 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 of your retirement savings in, in gold Canadian maple leaf coins. You know, it's going to be bad. Commodity values uh, money is valued by weight. A coin is just precious metal that is stamped to indicate how much it weighs. Now, with coins, changes, making change. Is, is much easier. There's no more having to fish a ham sandwich and three pork chops out of your pocket to pay for a goat, you know. But coins cause confu confusions of their own. Uh, going from weighing money uh, to stamping coins is a simple step, but a couple of thousand years passed before that step was taken for a very good libertarian reason. Nobody trusted anybody else to do the stamping. Now, when coins were invented, that distrust proved to be well-founded. The first Western coins uh, were minted by the Kingdom of Lydia in what's now Turkey, 
and they were made of a gold-silver alloy called electrum. Now, it is hard for anybody but a chemist, and there weren't any, uh, to tell how much gold is in a piece of electrum versus how much silver. The politicians who minted those coins, notably the king of Lydia, Croesus, uh, became proverbial for being rich as Croesus. Now in China, in China, same sort of thing, the weight of bronze cash was supposedly enforced by death penalties. And a lot of people must have gone to the electric chair, or, or, or they would have if the Chinese had had electricity. Uh, because a horse cost 4,500 one-cash coins during the Han Dynasty, and by the time of the Tang Dynasty, a few hundred years later, a horse cost 25,000 cash. The, 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 so the, the political authorities who issue cash, they can't resist the temptation to debase that cash. Kings, emperors, even lowly U.S. congressmen have expenses, and it is to the government's advantage to pay those expenses with funny money. Now, one reason the concept of money so often violates common sense is that governments make money nonsensical. Another reason money violates common sense is that we don't have to use commodities as money. We can use written promises to deliver those commodities, paper money. This is fiduciary money, from the Latin word fiducia, meaning trust, and don't. Uh, uh, <laughs> Trust but verify, said the only U.S. president who ever had any libertarian principles whatsoever. Um, actually, paper, paper money, in fact, had a libertarian origin. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a free market thing, uh, uh, at least in Europe. Uh, paper money developed privately uh, in the 13th century from bills of exchange traded among Italian merchants and from receipts given by, uh, by goldsmiths who held precious metals for safekeeping. Uh, but it did not take long for politicians to steal the idea. The first government fiduciary money was printed in Sweden uh, in 1656. The Stockholm's Banco uh, uh, began uh, issuing this the paper money. See, Swedish commodity money came in the form of big copper plates, and thus in Sweden a large fortune was a large fortune. So Stockholm Banco begins issuing this fiduciary money, and uh, the bank issued too many notes, and the go Swedish government went broke. In 1716, Scotsman John Law helped the uh, French government establish the Bank Royale, uh, issuing notes backed by French land holdings in Louisiana. Bank Royale issued too many notes, and the French government went broke. In 1775, here in America, Continental Congress not only created fiduciary money, but passed a law against refusing to accept it. Continental Congress issued too many notes, and a subtle pattern begins to emerge. All fiduciary money is backed by a commodity, even if the backers are lying about the amount of that commodity that they have. Now, historically, the most common commodity has been gold. By the 19th century, major currencies of the world were backed by gold, uh, led by the most major currency, the British pound. Now, this was a period of monetary stability and not coincidentally of great economic growth. Some people think we should go back on the gold standard, and not all of them live in armed compounds in Idaho. Because um, <laughs> money ought to be worth something, you know, and gold seems as good as whatever. But the high value of gold is a kind of a social convention, a, a habit left over from the days when bright, unblemished things, people included, were, were, were rare. 
Uh, gold may go out of fashion. Uh, a, a generation may come along that regards gold as gross and immoral, the way millennials regard veal, you know. Uh, and gold is a product. Uh, we may discover improved methods to get huge new amounts of it. Uh, this happened to the Spanish. Uh, when they conquered the New World, they obtained tons of gold, uh, melted it down, sent it to the mint. It never occurred to them that they were just creating more money, not more things to buy with that money. And between 1500 and 1600, prices in Spain went up 400%. Uh, presented with the vast wealth of, of America's oceans and fields and forests, Spain took the gold. It was, it was as if somebody robbed a bank and all they stole were the deposit slips, you know? So gold is not an absolutely perfectly rational basis for currency, but the real problem with fiduciary money from a government standpoint is not that it's irrational, but it, that it's inconvenient. A currency uh, 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 that can be converted into a commodity limits the amount of currency that can be printed. The government has to have at least some of that commodity or the world makes a laughing stock out of its banknotes, not worth the continental. With fiduciary money, governments lie about having the precious metals to redeem their paper currency, and governments do worse than lie. People holding fiduciary money can wake up the way they did on April 5th, 1933, when FDR signed Executive Order 6102 banning the ownership of gold. They can wake up to find out that redeeming paper currency for what the law says it's worth is against the law. So if a government can lie and steal to support its currency, why can't a government lie about and steal everything to do with its currency? And that is what governments have done. Instead of passing a law saying $1 equals X amount of gold, our government has passed a law saying $1 equals $1. This is fiat money from the Latin word for a binding edict, also from the Italian word for a cheap and not very reliable car. <laughs> Fiat money is backed by nothing but faith that a government won't keep printing money until we're using it in place of something more important such as toilet paper, uh, which is what things have come to in Venezuela. But it's not just the Venezuelan boulevard. Uh, no intrinsic value is involved in any Fiat money, just a pronouncement of existentialism from central banks. I mean, trillions and trillions of dollars, euros, pounds, yen, renminbi, are singing, we're here because we're here because we're here because we're here. That was a popular tune in the trenches during World War I, appropriately enough, since World War I was when fiat money came into global use. All of the money in the world today is fiat money. We've got it because the government says we've got to got it. Fiat money is supposed to be worth something for what I call the lousy parent reason. A frustrated and inept government tells us, like we frustrated and inept parents tell our children, because I said so. So, is cryptocurrency the answer? Now, that's one of those, I'm glad you asked that question questions. Like politicians who are running for office always say, I'm glad you asked that question. That means they haven't got the slightest idea what the answer is. Now, as a libertarian, I want a medium of exchange, a kind of money that adheres to libertarian principles. In fact, money that adheres to just one libertarian principle will suffice, and that is the privacy principle. What I do that doesn't physically harm anyone else is none of anyone else's damn business, period. Now, business is conducted with money. 
Cryptocurrency would seem to be the private kind of money that libertarians want. Um, it's private in, in the two most important senses of privacy. First, cryptocurrency is not public, and therefore it's not subject to government public policy. Government public policy with money being to issue as much of the government uh, as the government feels like issuing. Government, you know, treats money like a, like a stalker treats your Facebook page. You know, a couple of, couple of clicks from the Federal Reserve keyboard, and there's another creepy rant. You know, the, the original rant didn't have much value, and subsequent rantings are increasingly worthless and worrying. But unfriending the government is very difficult. Um, second, cryptocurrency encrypts transactions. What you're buying or selling isn't revealed to a nosy snoop. Uh, that nosy snoop being, once again, the government. Uh, now, I'm a pretty law-abiding guy. I mean, I'll, I'll wait for the walk sign on an empty street corner in the middle of the night. You know? uh, I don't even cheat on my taxes any more than federally mandated tax loopholes require me to do. You know? um, I wouldn't use cryptocurrency for any criminal scheme. Well, maybe getting some cumid cigars, but, you know. But, but, but no matter how legal the purchases I make are, I don't like these private purchases being on the public record in sales receipts and credit card records available to who knows which nosy government agency. And I don't like other people's purchases being on the public record either, you know? I mean, if somebody buys a plastic inflatable, anatomically correct Minnie Mouse doll for intimate relations in the privacy of the home, I don't want to know about it, okay? <laughs> and, and, and I don't want the government to know about it either, you know, for fear that the, uh, you know, that the EPA will uh, impose endangered plastic rodent regulations on all of us, or, 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 or that some high-minded EPA functionary will leak the information to, to, to PETA, causing the inflatable mouse door, doll store to, to, to be vandalized when my car is parked nearby within paint-tossing range, you know? I am much more worried about government abusing its police powers than I am about individuals abusing their purchasing powers. So that's the case in favor of cryptocurrency. But to tell you the truth, I don't own any, you know. In fact, I have no use for this stuff. Uh, uh, now, the price of, of one Bitcoin, that's hovering around $6,000. But if you wanted to buy the banged-up old Volvo station wagon that I got for my teenage kids to bang up some more, and you offered me one Bitcoin for it, I'd tell you to bite me, you know? <laughs> now, this is because I'm ignorant. I'm confused by the mathematical intricacies used to form the computer program blockchain that underlies cryptocurrency. Now, of course, I'm confused by a lot of things. Um, I'm confused by women, which didn't stop me from marrying a delightful one. Um, I ride on airplanes all the time while having no idea how they take off or why they land. You know? uh, but I am particularly confused by the internet. I look at the internet and I think, whose bright idea was it to make sure that every idiot in the world is in touch with every other idiot? You know? Also, the internet seems to me to be an enormous hacking industry serviced by a small global interconnected computer network. You know? And I, and I fear that somehow cryptocurrency is the invention of outlaw nerds with weaponized slide rules in the high school evil math club. You know? Right now, some dateless pear-shaped 15-year-old wearing emoji pajamas is in his bedroom with the, the floor covered in empty, empty snicker wrappers and logging on to make himself a darknet billionaire. You know? I hope that Walgreens accepts cryptocurrency in payment for acne cream. Um, so. Money is the root of libertarianism. 
But anybody who isn't confused about money is insane, and the extra confusions of cryptocurrency are probably aren't the anti-psychotic psychotic medication that, that, that is required. Uh, we worry about money. We worry about our medium of exchange. We worry that our medium of exchange collapses. If that, if that happens, our society will collapse. So I was thinking about this stuff, and I thought maybe, well, one way to understand uh, that worry about societal collapse is to go someplace where society has collapsed already and sort of see what happens. So I went to Somalia. I went to Somalia in 1992 um, to cover the U.S.-led uh, military mission to save Somalia, notionally from famine, but actually from total anarchy. And let me pause for a moment right here and talk about anarchy, because we libertarians are often confused with or accused of being anarchists, and this just isn't true. It isn't true. Libertarians believe in social structure. We believe in a social structure that protects individual liberty, upholds individual dignity, and ensures individual responsibility. Uh, and this is very different from believing in no social structure at all. And Somalia had no social structure at all. Somalia was true anarchy. A vicious dictatorship was overthrown, and the Somalis celebrated their independence by shooting each other. Fighting broke out everywhere, and it wasn't traditional African tribal warfare. The Somalis are, all belong to the same tribe, but the tribe has six clans, and the six clans have hundreds of subclans, and each subclan is divided into infinite murderous feuds. Uh, the Somalis fought each other. They fought each other with rifles, machine guns, mortars, cannons, and to judge by the look of Mogadishu, wads of filth. Uh, in the old town, not one stone stood upon another. In the new part of the city, everything had been built out of concrete, and the concrete had been blasted back into piles of aggregate rebar and Portland cement. There was no water or electricity. At night, the only illumination was from tracer bullets. Uh, every tree and bush had been snatched for firewood. Sewage welled up through what pavement was left. Mounds of sand blew through the streets. Rubbish was dumped on top of wreckage, and goats grazed on the offal. Everything that guns can accomplish had been achieved in Mogadishu. So I'd signed on. This wasn't someplace I could go alone. I signed on as a radio reporter with ABC News. And ABC had found, to cover this, the, the story of the U.S. incursion, uh, had found this walled mansion more or less intact uh, uh, on the edge of Mogadishu. And they hired a 40-man army of Somali mercenaries to protect this, this, this ABC uh, outpost. And there was 20-some of us uh, in there, reporters, camera crews, producers, tech people, were housed in this compound and uh, 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 bedded down in shifts, and our Somali mercenaries are all camped out in the yard, chewing cot and getting high, and, you know. It was impossible for us to go outside this compound without a truck full of these mercenaries. I mean, and even with our gunmen along, we were, there were always people massing up to, like, beg and thieve, you know, hands tugging at wallet pockets, fingers nipped at wristwatch bands. No foreigner could make a move without attracting this hornet's nest of attention, demanding, grasping, pushing mobs of cursing, whining, sneering people. And meanwhile, young men waving AK-47 rifles or rushing, pushing their way around in the crowd and these rusted, dented pickup trucks with gun mounts welded in their beds were sputtering around on, on, on predatory errands. And so anyway, there was another reporter, another ABC reporter there, I'll call him Leon, and he'd been in Somalia for six months. And um, Leon offered to take me to the market in Mogadishu. 
And uh, yeah, I said, sure, I wanted, to see whether, I wanted to see whether there was a market in Mogadishu, and if there was a market, what the hell they were buying and selling in that market in Mogadishu, which was turned out to be goats fed on offal. Um, but I learned an important lesson in, in, in the medium of exchange in, in that Mogadishu market. I learned that there will always be a medium of exchange. Currency may not be what you expect, may not be what you want, but no, no matter how totally society collapses, there will be a form of currency. So we're traveling, we're traveling to the market with this, uh, with this armed Somali driver, an armed Somali translator, and this truck full of armed Somali mercenaries. But nonetheless, my friend Leon was carrying a nine millimeter Glock pistol. And when we re arrived at the market, Leon gets out of the car and he holds his pistol up over his head and he gives this dramatic flourish. He, he racks a bullet in, in, into the firing chamber. And I look at him and go, and he turns to me and he's grinning like a maniac and he says, I call it the visa card of the future. <laughs> so anyway, that's, my, that's everything I know. Uh, but if anybody's got questions out there, uh, I will make up some other stuff. Um, do we have any questions? Someone must. I can't see a thing from up here. So, okay. Thanks a lot, PJ. Would you would you tell us, please, why the Cato Institute has never condemned fiat money as as not being libertarian? Wait a minute. What? what? Let, let me let me restate it. It seems to me the Cato Institute, uh, almost from inception, has given paper money a pass. And they have never condemned paper money as not being in conformity with libertarianism. Oh, I, no, I don't think we would condemn uh, 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 paper money as, as uh, I don't think we should condemn paper money as being non-libertarian, as long as that paper is worth something, as long as that paper is backed by something. Uh, there is a world of difference between, as I pointed out, fiduciary paper money, paper money which is based on trust, and which you can well imagine a, a, a private issuance. Well, we do. We do it all the time, you know with bonds and, and, and all sorts of financial instruments. We issue our own paper money all the time. And you know, we trust it according to our analysis of the people who issue it. And uh, uh, we would trust, we trust government money much the same way. But yeah, Cato probably hasn't been, to my mind, as strong as we might have been about condemning the idea of fiat money in general. Fiat money in general is just, is just absolutely absurd. And it leaves us open to, um, to the possibility of all sorts of sudden crashes uh, in the value of a currency. I don't think that's going to happen with U.S. currency, but there are a lot of other major currencies out there that this easily could happen to. And, you know, talk to any country in, in Latin America, and they will tell you that that's, that, that, that's so. And, and so it's just, it's just an absolute invitation when, you're, when, when money is... When everybody admits that money is worthless and then keeps passing it around as a medium of exchange, trouble will come. Let me, let me restate that question. Doesn't, doesn't our paper dollar violate property rights? Doesn't our paper dollar violate property rights? What well, violates the concept of property since it isn't worth anything? Yeah, I mean, it, it, worse than violate property rights, it isn't property. 
and it's passed off by the government as being property. So that is a violation of our property rights. When you, you, when you have imaginary property, you cannot have property rights in imaginary property. Sir. Okay, where are our microphones? Thank you to Roy Murdoch with the Atlas Network. Oh. Uh, as someone who's traveled all around the world, I'm wondering if you could point to which country would you point to as having the soundest money or the uh, currency system closest to what your ideal is? Yeah, it would be nice if there were some Shangri-La out there that had uh, uh, solid economic principles. Um, I don't think there is one any, anymore. Uh, it, 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 the concept is gone. Uh, there, probably Hong Kong when it was a, uh, but then Hong Kong's currency was pegged to ours. It wasn't actually backed by anything. I wonder what, you know, I don't know the answer to that. It's a good historical question. Where was the last place that had, there was a time in Portugal, it had a pretty unpleasant government, but it had a very sound currency that was backed by platinum, of all things, which Portugal happens to have a fair amount of. I wonder where the last place was that had actual gold currency. But we do know that Somalia and places like that have lead currency. It's, their currency is backed by ample supplies of lead. Oh, okay. okay. Hey, PJ, great lecture. I, I'd love to get your take on what's happening with the tariff wars and how this plays into uh, the currency um, situation and, and, and how tariffs affect the uh, currency rates. Well, the, ter the, 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 the tariff wars, um, uh, yeah, it's interesting how, t how tariffs affect uh, 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 currency rates. It's a question that's, uh, I'd be a little out of, I'd be in the deep end of the swimming pool with my water wings on with that one. It definitely has to do with, with trade deficits, except for ours, because we're in the international reserve currency. So, you, yeah, I mean, that's like more than I could possibly get into. But when it comes to trade barrier stuff that's going on, well, first place, I can't stand this administration because I am a fundamental free trader, not so much because I think it's economically efficacious, although it would seem to be, but because it's a basic human right. I think you're inter interfering with basic human rights when you interfere with free trade. And unless there's some, some really compelling reason to interfere with this free trade, and, you know, we don't want to give, like, uranium to Nazis, okay? I mean, I, I get that, you know? But unless there's some really compelling reason for this, if it's just a so-called economic reason, you're just violating human rights. But that brings us to a larger question about our president, really. And that is, is he crazy? Is he crazy like a fox, or is he crazy like Fox News? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I can't figure it out. I mean, do we have some trade partners that are not living up in spirit to the letter of our trade agreements with them? Yeah, we do. I mean, you know, every country uh, cheats on its trade agreements to the greatest capacity possible. Uh, Europe is famous for doing it with farm produce, and, and, and the Japanese do that, too. Uh, the Chinese do it with manufactured goods. They're very reluctant to. We do it with all sorts of uh, regulatory stuff, sometimes conscious and sometimes unconscious. I mean, uh, you have to build a whole different car to import it to the United States and a different one yet to import it to California. Uh, so everybody interferes out there. And if our president is using sort of scare tactics in hopes of, uh, 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 of creating better trade deals, well, it's not a tactic I'd pick, but it, it might be a tactic that will work. 
On the other hand, does he also, does he not know what he's talking about? Yeah, well, those are, you know, that's a Venn diagram that overlaps. You know, I mean, he could be, yes, using a scare tactic and also not knowing what he was talking about, you know. Uh, um, or is he just taking up all the oxygen in the room again? I don't know, you know. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll have to see on that, but I'm not, I'm not feeling confident that we're not headed into a trade restriction period. I just wanted to play devil's advocate. Uh, so since we've gone off the gold standard, we've had fiat currency, and we've actually had very long uh, muted economic cycles. And while debt has grown a lot since the late 70s, and the economy's become more financialized, we have not yet seen direct monetization of debt by the government. And the currencies, at least in the West, have been pretty stable relative to some other places like you mentioned in Latin America. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I think one of the reasons that our currencies are relatively stable is because there are now so few of them. If uh, uh, the, 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 the euro basically took up a lot of slack with, with volatile currencies, uh, we're down to really four currencies in the world. Uh, uh, everything is calculated in U.S. dollars, in euros, in renminbi, or in pounds. So all four of those currencies are acting as a reserve currency. And everything, as long as we are in a period of relative peace among these countries and blocks, and we're in, in, in a mood of, uh, of, of, of free market trust exchange, everything will go along smoothly until something happens. And then there'll be no recourse. Um, I mean, it's, it is, you know, it's a house of cards. They're very stiff and heavy cards. It's going to take Florence to blow them over. But Florence will come. One thing we can always say for sure about a crisis is it will come. There will be a crisis. And we're not set up financially, I don't think, to, to endure that, 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 that crisis very well. Um, of course, you know, how would you set things up? so that we were able to endure a crisis. I, you know, under the gold standard, under the gold standard, we had plenty of them. So it's not, it's not simply uh, that, but it's, it, 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 it's, it is fragile and scary. In fact, I just had to, two things that, I, that, that would worry me economically are the international f financial structure built out of air, basically, and the enormous amount of free money that has been printed during this recovery from the 2008 uh, recession, uh, that uh, the free money has led to the acquisition of enormous amounts of debt, and much of that debt is totally uncollateralized. I mean, even back in the worst of 2008, the worst of the subprime things, there, were, there was a house, may not have been worth what they said it was worth, May not been, it may not have been affordable by the people who were living there, but there was a house. It was worth something. What is there with a college loan? We got 1.4 trillion outstanding in college debt, college education. What's the collateral there? I'll give you, I'll give you my English thesis on Henry James in return for $40,000. Scary. Sir. We've got a microphone coming your way. Just a side comment on what you said about currency. 
I agree with you, but I would put yen ahead of renminbi because renminbi is not fully convertible. Wait a minute, I'm sorry, I, didn't, I did not. I said the renminbi is not fully convertible. All the other currencies. Oh, no, the renminbi is not, is not convertible. And of course, none of those rest of those currencies are fully convertible either the minute the governments that issue them decide they aren't. You know? The thing about the renminbi is it's like more honest than the other currencies in a way because we know it's rigged. You know? <laughs> the euro, the pound, and the dollar, people are going, it's not rigged. You know, it's folks free. You know, free is the air. You know? No, it doesn't. You know, there's a, there's a, you know, the central banks are there to interfere. So in some ways, the fact that the renminbi is not fully convertible makes its behavior more predictable because you look at like, okay, what do the Chinese want it to be? And that's what it becomes because they have absolute control over, over that currency, and they don't have to take, they don't have to, they don't have to do weird things to affect the value of the currency. You know, they don't have to do sort of weird bond buying sprees, or, or, or as the Japanese with the yen have even done. They've even bought, they've even bought private securities, in their attempt to to to, to boost. Their central bank has bought private securities in an attempt to 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 boost the. Way in the back. What? Okay, what do I think about the euro? And then I didn't catch the other half. The microphone is on its way. What do you think about the euro now? And uh, part of the question is that it's tied to the success or failure of the EU. Yeah, well, uh, 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 it wouldn't be a huge surprise, would it, if the EU, if more of the EU crumbled? I mean, it already seems to be. Uh, you know, they're already at daggers drawn with Hungary and Poland, and I forget what the other uh, Central European country that has a naughty government is, as far as the rest of the EU is concerned. But I mean, just the, the, the underlying idea of the euro, okay, what's the good part of the euro? It decreases friction in exchange, you know, for free trade. And you've got like a, 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 an area with, with zero, essentially zero tariff area, and so you want one currency. That's nice. But, Currencies also reflect the, the political personality of the country involved. You've got Germany terrified of inflation. You've got Italy that loves inflation, you know, that everybody's been living with inflation for centuries, you know. And they, you know, they, 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 you know the Italian attitude toward government-issued money is entirely different from the German attitude. And in between some place, you've got the French and the Spanish. You've got these various different attitudes Countries that absorb and cope with and roll with inflation very easily. Countries where the social fabric is undone by inflation. And they've all got the same central bank. And, that's in that, and, and, and they're not in control of the, of the, it really is not a very workable idea. The other unworkable thing about, not unworkable thing about the EU, but I was in Europe this summer, so I'm in Europe, and it's expensive. It's really expensive in Europe. And then we go over to Bulgaria, which is still in Europe, but is not in the Eurozone. They got the lev over there. And we rented an apartment in downtown Sofia, right next to the National Opera, right, right by, the, uh, 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 by, by the huge cathedral, right in the center of town. Uh, a beautiful apartment, three bedrooms, three bathrooms, all the modern conveniences washing machine and dryer and all this, $67 a night, you know? And okay, Sofia's not Paris, but close enough as far as <laughs> Food was good, people were nice, you know? Sights were, sights were seen, and we enjoyed ourselves.
So it's uh, 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 so when you see a contrast like that, and the thing about Bulgaria is Bulgaria's done pretty well. Uh, being in Bulgaria, it's a little bit like being in small town Austria or or, or maybe southern Italy or so. It's kind, of, it's kind of the poorer part of Europe, but by no means desolate, by no means destitute. And yet, you're down there in the heel of Italy, and things are costing three times what they're costing of Bulgaria. What, what, what is going on? And this is a direct effect of the euro and not a good one. Hi there. So, Hi. in the event that we do have a financial a, a currency collapse, what would take it? What would take? And really, the dollar I would assume is really the reserve currency of the world. Yeah. What would take its place? What do you envision? What do you see that would take its place? I don't think there's anything there that that, that would would take its place. Cryptocurrency certainly not. What I think you might have is a, 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 a some sort of market basket credit instrument. Uh, I, I, I think there, there, that, that there, there might be an evolution of what, what was essentially private script. With that private script uh, value hooked to a, a market basket of goods and services. That's one conceivable thing. I mean, we are so well financially integrated around the world and we are so sophisticated in our, in our computer connections. Um, this is, on, a, on a side note, I was talking to an investment banker friend of mine about gold. And he said, gold is never coming back. He said, it's just never coming back to the kind of high value relative to the dollar that it once had. And I said, why is that? And he said, because uh, gold is where you go when you're scared. And he said, we now have such fluid marketplaces that for most investors, they have got a way out if they're scared uh, uh, into, into property, into equities, into debt, into some other currency. They are so flexible with their resources that they don't have to uh, 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 grab gold. That it's sort of the, so the price of gold is no longer dependent upon what major economic thinkers are thinking. It's dependent on frightened people in small villages in India, what they're thinking about. Now, that, that can affect the price of gold I mean, and, and frighten people around the world, but it can't affect it in the same way that if J.P. Morgan wants to go to gold. And he said that's basically never going to happen again. And we have one more out there, back there. Since you're drawing to a close, where do you see the bright spots? Yeah, where do I see the bright spots? Um, yeah, it is important to remember that there usually are bright spots. Um, I may not be all that crazy about the innovations in the American economy. I don't like Twitter. I don't like Facebook. I could care less about uh, movie streaming series. Uh, most, of the, most of the big economic and technological advances we've made over the past 20 years bore or confuse me. And yet we made them. And where were they made? They were made here in the United States. Now, this is, as we all know, in this room, this country is no libertarian paradise. But compared to most other countries, our markets remain fairly, not free of interference, but with, with, with a, by global standards, there's a minimum of interference with our markets, with our capital flows. And it's no accident that, that on the innovation front that the innovations are coming from here the less regulated 
country and not from the more regulated countries. So that's a big bright spot. Well, thank you all thank you. very much.